to high truths on drugs and addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has worked at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Each episode, we will answer questions from you, our listeners. To learn more about the show, submit a question, access educational material, or even take a quiz, you can visit us on hightruths.com. I am so excited for the show we have ahead of us today. We have an excellent question to be answered by a very special expert. Let's hear our question from Sarah Salvin. She is a public health specialist who works for CCR, Center for Community Research, our first and therefore very special High Truth sponsor. Hi, Dr. Love, and thank you for your show. My name is Sarah Salvin, and I'm a public health specialist working at CCR, a nonprofit based out of San Diego. A question we regularly get asked from the community is why people get addicted to drugs. Can you talk a little bit about that as a physician? Thank you, Sarah Salvin, for your question. To answer it, I think we need to understand what drug addiction is. Drug addiction is a chronic relapsing disease of the brain. Chronic means it lasts a long time, maybe even a lifetime. Relapsing, that means it comes and goes, comes and goes. You have some days that you're doing well and days that you're not doing as well, just like any other disease, such as asthma, diabetes, or hypertension. And it's a disease of the brain. We see abnormalities in the brain when people have an addiction. Addiction also resets the dopamine set point of your brain. So for example, today, just to get out of bed and wake up in the morning and get ready for this podcast, my dopamine level was about 15 to 40 units. On the best day of my life, you know, my wedding day, the best day ever, you win the lottery, my dopamine level goes up to 100. But people who use drugs, marijuana, their uh, dopamine goes up to 600, methamphetamine, 1,000, and that becomes their normal. For them just to wake up in the morning, they need those 1,000 units. If they get below that, um, they feel that they're dying. And that's when you see people do anything because they feel that their survival depends on that dopamine. So really, it's a it's a pseudo uh, depletion of dopamine or a sensation of that um, that causes addiction. There are about 20 million Americans 18 years or older who have a substance use disorder of alcohol, opioids, methamphetamines, cocaine, marijuana, kratom. There are about 165 million Americans, about 60% of the population, 12 and over, have tried something that's addictive in the past year. Why? Why do they do this? And that's the ultimate question uh, that Sarah is asking us. And the answer is biology, genetics, environment. If you are around drugs, you're more likely to be using drugs. Age is an issue. If you are using drugs when your brain is growing, then there are more of a chance of you developing a habit um, and and priming your brain um, to that habit. But it's important to know that people who have addiction are not bad people. Um, There are people who smoke. They have that addiction. They're not bad people. There are people who are overweight and may eat too much. Um, They're not bad people. And people who use drugs are not bad people. Um, They have a chronic relapsing disease of the brain that needs treatment just like any other treatment. Sarah, I know you wanted to hear from me as a physician 
I learn answers from researchers and scientists, but sometimes the best learning comes from my patients. Our emergency department is packed with people who suffer from addiction, but our expert today, Robert, stands out as being able to share a horrific journey and show that there is light at the end of the tunnel. A shout out to Tanya Popoff, a substance use disorder counselor in the emergency department at Scripps Mercy Hospital in San Diego, part of the California Bridge Program, and she works on connecting patients such as Robert to MAT or medication for assistant treatment. Robert was a patient in the emergency department where I work. He was homeless, addicted to heroin and methamphetamine, had an infection that brought him to the emergency department that ended up requiring lots of surgery from a bad infection. Robert, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to have you here. And honestly, it was kind of almost intimidating. Your your background is is quite a lot more than what I've I've had experience with dealing with before. So this is a privilege to be here, and I'm just really excited. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> look. If you saw me, I'm I'm like five feet and very not intimidating. Um, <laughs> you you seem like a very nice gal, though. <laughs> Robert, you are our expert for this show. Um, the question that we have brought to the show is, why do people have addiction? Why does that happen to people? And I thought that your journey kind of answers that. As far as my situation, I became addicted because of a number of things. First of all, I, I was kind of raised in a troublesome environment where there was a lot of arguing and a lot of um, poor communication and that led me to finding different means of coping with that kind of stuff. And which of course is drugs and alcohol as, as far as the negative side of it. Um, but I had a, I had an event happen where I, I, it required surgery, two surgeries in fact. And this was in, a, in high school and I was uh, for the recovery portion of it, which were about three months each, I was prescribed uh, heavy duty painkillers for a long time. What was your injury? Um, I had, I, my foot or my feet grew kind of funky. So I, I had to get a uh, surgery to like, uh, um, corrective surgery to make them straight enough. I got nerve damage and, and it was kind of weird. Honestly, how, it was a long time. Uh, it's 15 and 16 years old. Um, it was about a four month period each. And I was on the painkillers for three months out of those four each time. And I didn't necessarily um, go right into opiates, but it did kind of shift my mind as far as how I dealt with things. And I was an al full-blown alcoholic by 19 years old, wow. um, using opiates by 2021. 20, and, you know, I was off to the races. So as far as to get back to your question, um, as far as why, I think it, it's a learned um, kind of ailment where we're taught by the, the people around us, namely parents, um, most of our, our crucial coping skills. And what I was shown early on in life was that this was a method that was okay. And it just doesn't work like that. It, that um, the consequences for living like that in society are just far too high. It's just not how, not how we can live life, at least not happily. <laughs> when, when you talk about your your parents and as an example do you mean um you know like a lot of parents do like oh you have a cough take a cough medicine or you this hurts you take a motrin take a this there's a pill for everything do you mean that or is it a lot harsher things no i mean it uh the, my my mom and my real dad had a very rocky relationship and 
my dad could be considered or would have been considered at the time an alcoholic and same with my mom. But by, by watching how they dealt with their own problems, I mirrored that in my own life. And this was, it was a similar, similar way that they reacted in life. So in order, in, instead of, you know, communicating effectively and, and working through problems, they turned to alcohol and I just got a little more wild so, with but- it, I guess. <laughs> We know as a um, you know, scientific community that addiction can have a strong genetic connection. You're mentioning your parents. Do you have other um, people in your family that, that have addiction? Um, yes, but as far as the genetic relationship, I can only really speak to my father. Um, so he obviously, he had alcoholic times in his life. Um, he managed to quit at about... 40, 45 years old and which is rare, obviously, but, um, but as far as the genetic aspect of that, my mom was adopted. So I don't really know anything beyond her. So my, my immediate parents, yes, my, uh, I guess my mom's adopted mother has been an alcoholic and still is, and she's well into her eighties now. So I, it's just throughout my family. I was, that's the example I was given. And any other family members now that, you know, have addiction? I have a twin brother who I consider my best friend. Um, I've always introduced him as the cooler, better looking version of myself. Well, you look um, pretty handsome he, yourself. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> he He's faced issues with addiction and alcoholism as well. He's actually currently in treatment himself. Uh, we've always kind of had a pattern in our lives of you know, one of us does something and the other one come or comes in right behind, does the same thing. We kind of chase each other around and it's, it's a pretty cool and healthy kind of competition that we have. Are you identical Um, twins? No, we're fraternal. So you could tell we're brothers, but I mean, it's quite often that, that we get accused of lying. Oh, you're just friends, you know, like you guys aren't twins and some kind of funny, but um, as far as uh, his addiction problems, they've been similar to mine. Um, mine have kind of reached a further depth because of, I guess, location differences and just kind of the, the support systems we had around us. I moved to, um, to San Diego about five or six years ago. I, I first noticed that I was having problems with alcohol first. And that was when I was about 19, 20 years old. I was working as an auto mechanic um, in Spokane, Washington, which is my hometown. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a rough and tumble job and all that. And I hadn't at that time figured out that, uh, that I had this huge problem that I do. Um, and it led, led me to kind of just working it into a facet as a facet of my life. But eventually the consequences kept rising and I ended up losing a very good job. I had, I was an assistant manager for a company that I've been working for, for over four years at the time. And I was, I was 22 when that happened. Um, and it it crushed me and it was because of alcohol. It was directly related to it. So I, I went to rehab after, after I had lost my job. Um, and I didn't take it seriously. I, I didn't really think I was one of those guys, you know, like it didn't really, I wasn't that bad, you know? So, uh, of course, fast forward two months down the road and I'm right back at it. So, um, Another about three or four years later, it had gotten to the point where I was using anything I possibly could, including opiates, um, nothing IV at that point. Um, And 
I had a family member that had some kind of close ties with somebody that worked in a rehab. And she suggested that I go to this rehab, which was located in Vista, um, North County, San Diego. And I went there and I got kicked out for having a cell phone after about two months. And I went straight to the streets. That was the first time I was actually homeless. And how old were you? I was 27 at that point. Um, and the, the nature of being homeless and of just living on the streets, it's, it's, it's hard. And I, I wasn't, I wasn't equipped with the coping mechanisms to get myself out of the the situation. I didn't have support. Um, there were a lot of things missing that, that would, that would have stopped me from declining even further into my addictions. So it wasn't very long until I was introduced to IV drug use and it was, it definitely turned into a rapid, rapid downfall from that point. What, um, what drugs were you using? Heroin and meth. M- meth was more frequent. Um, but the times where I was using both heroin and meth were the most destructive times of my life. If you had a, which of the two were you more drawn to, or did you have a, as far as, cause I, I never used uh, meth or I never shot up before I was homeless. And one of the aspects of being homeless is you have to move around a lot and which requires energy that you just don't have because a lot of, a lot of us take for granted the, our ability to just, you know, go lay down on a bed and get rest, you know, and how that really refreshes you for the next day and provides you the energy that you need to get on. Um, so that's why meth is so, uh, prevalent in the homeless community is because it, it kind of helps, helps a person cope because it, it takes you out of reality and, and, you know, really removes all the anxiety and all that stuff that, you know, we, which is the main reason we are drawn to drugs and alcohol in the first place. Um, but it also provides the energy that you need to kind of stay out of trouble, um, which is, it's a total lie because it gets you in trouble. So <laughs> It doesn't really work. I worked last night. I'd say most of the people who are homeless are on meth. And I could see that they just want a place to crash for a few hours. It was one of the lowest points in my life where I realized that the difference between sleeping on just bare concrete and what one layer of cardboard, corrugated cardboard. Yeah. Robert, and when you did you <laughs> you were using drugs when you were in high school? Uh, kind of mildly. I, I smoked weed from time to time. But that was really the extent of my my drug use when I was really young. I did I did some psychedelics, of course, you know, tried mushrooms and acid a couple of times when I was in high school. But as far as hard drugs, I never got into them. Um, it was like I I was raised, I guess, in a way that uh, at least tried to keep me away from the hard drugs. But it alcohol was an OK thing. Did you use alcohol before marijuana at the same time or how old were you? And I think the marijuana? two. The two kind of happened about the same time, and but the the cooler thing to do in school was to smoke weed because you know the I guess one of the effects of alcohol is you smell like it too, and it's easier to get away with just smoking weed. <laughs> and we really talk about what we know about how marijuana affects the growing brain. That your brain um, is not done growing till you're 27, and if you're inducing marijuana uh, mm-hmm. while you're that young, that that affects the growth of your brain. Looking yes. back now, do you think that that was an association? Absolutely. Um, I couldn't be more sure. Uh, 
So at the same time that I started using drugs and alcohol, which was, I'd say about 13, 14 years old, my grades dropped off. I mean, like fell off a cliff. I, I was a really good student uh, in my very younger years, like through elementary school and middle school. I mean, probably close to straight A's until I started using alcohol and marijuana. Um, I think if I hadn't started using marijuana at that time, I, I, my whole life would be different. The entire trajectory of my life would have changed. And did you finish high school? Yes, ma'am. Um, uh, but by, from a direct quote from my principal, I graduated by the skin of my teeth with a GPA of 1.6. 1. 1.6 so, GPA, Robert. Literally the, the lowest. Yeah. Congratulations. A lot of people struggle to get that 4.0, but you got a 1.6 and, uh, it took yeah. effort. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean, that, that's remarkable. So tell us what brought you to the emergency department at Scripps Mercy on that. I don't know if that was the lowest of your low that ended up there. Oh, I consider it the start of my life now. Um, what brought me there was I had, I had missed a shot um, self-injecting. And what, is that, had, what does that mean, missed a shot? Uh, in this particular instance, it meant that I had actually kind of severed a vein um, while trying to, I guess, get a, a needle into the vein. You can you can go too far and it shoots out the backside of it. It's there's just it's really gross. And there's a lot of ways that you can screw it up, especially in a non sterile medical environment. Um, so it went wrong. Um, it wasn't frequent that it, it did. What were you injecting? That was that one was meth. Uh, well, meth and heroin. There was residue of heroin in it as well. But I had, I had missed a shot, and it, about two days after the I missed the shot, I started to develop a pretty involved infection. Um, it didn't really abscess, as they say, where like you get a big lump and it looks all gross. But I had big red streaks all up and down my arm, and just really severe pain. So. It had gotten to the point where I had lost consciousness. I was, I was on the street at that time, and I remember waking up on the on the sidewalk, just totally disoriented, having no idea what was going on, and that led me to making my way to my family's house to ask them if they could get me to the hospital. And thank God for my mom, she did. Um, but that uh, after I got to the hospital, they kind of drew a bunch of lines on my arm and asked me to come back the next day to see if it would get worse. And it ab absolutely did. Um, and I was in surgery about two hours, three hours after my second visit, after I had returned for a debridement. And I woke up with a hole in my arm about that big. So they cut your arm to get all the pus out. Yeah. Um, it, I can show you if you want. I don't know if you can see it, but I, I'm looking at a, a terrible scar right in the elbow area where people like draw blood and and have vein. And you, it looks like you have a permanent mark there to remind you of that experience. How many surgeries did you need? Uh, six total. Three of them are skin grafts. It had initially started in kind of my the elbow pit. I know there's a medical term for that, but I don't know it. <laughs> kind of cubital um, fossa. There it is. Hey, <laughs> wow. <laughs> so yeah, that uh, it had initially started there, but branched out, and it led to six surgeries. Three of those being skin grafts and a scar that I'm going to be able to remember every day of my life. My arm has a lot of like reduced circulation, so. 
I feel it every day. And it's a constant reminder that, you know, I can't go back to that life that I had, you know, yeah. or the, the, I guess the, the shape of now, a life that it might've been, <laughs> you know, in the emergency department, you were seen by an emergency physician. It, it's um, for our listeners, it's the emergency department where I work, but you didn't see me. You saw one of my colleagues and then your surgeon um, is a very, very special man. Dr. Randy Vecchione, a shout out to him because he is an elderly man who really devoted his entire life to coming in the emergency department and taking care of patients that a lot of plastic surgeons don't want to take care of because it, you know, it's a type of surgery that you have to go in and then multiple times. He's not getting paid much for it or anything. And he really dedicated his life to helping people who other people may not care about. Um, what was your experience with Dr. Vicione? Oh my gosh. Uh, I couldn't speak higher of this guy. He, I credit my life to, to this man. Dr. Vecchione quite literally saved my life on a, a number of occasions through the process. Um, beyond doing fine work, he, he would come to visit me in my room. Um, oh. I spent over or just about three months actually in the hospital. So seeing anybody that wanted to see me was kind of nice, but let alone the the very surgeon um, that is as busy as that man is. Who's heard uh, of that? Your plastic surgeon coming to say hello to you. I've had so many, so many great people help me along the way, but nobody more crucial than Dr. Vecchione. Oh. Um, he, he was just a, he just brightened my day every time he came by. He was very supportive encouraging because you get kind of discouraged when look because I would look down at my arm and it would it it's ugly big big skips in like skin yeah. to skin and there's a lot of stuff going on underneath but so it's easy to to let that get to your head but he he was always very confident um very reassuring and it really helped me through the process and I've got a couple pictures that that I just love me and this guy and he's always doing this kind of thing with oh. my arm <laughs> he's just he's just That's a great awesome. guy he yeah. is a great guy he is a special human being like one of our angels yes. that are are placed to, to you know in society to help people um robert a lot of people there are people every single day coming into the hospitals with infections related to drug use and they may get antibiotics or an infectious disease specialist or a cardiologist if it affects their heart. And they may sit in the hospital like you did for weeks and no one addresses the, the real source of what happened, which is your drug addiction. Um, when you were at Scripps Mercy Hospital, did you get connection to treatment? Yes. And uh, this is another person high on my list uh, as far as who I credit my success to, Tanya Popov. Um, I love her to death. She was she's just a pleasure to be around. But she was the one that recommended that I I sign up for the um, the rehab that I ended up going to, which was Episcopal Community Services um, in San Diego. Great people there. Awesome program. Um, my counselors are incredible. But back to Tanya, um, she would come visit me every few days and ask me, you know, how I was thinking. And faced with a situation that I was in where looking down, I have complete destruction of one of my favorite limbs um, and just the nature of my life at that, that moment. I mean, coming from the streets into this life-changing event where I wasn't entirely sure that I was going to get out of it. I, I, 
I answered yes immediately when she asked me if I if I wanted to get treatment for this. And she's like, great, I'll get working on it. Came back very quickly, very quickly about it. And and it had some some really good ideas as far as where I should go, which have ended ended up leaving leading me to ECS. And there were there were a couple other people's or people, excuse me, that helped me. I can't remember the doctor's name. Um, but she was the one that recommended Suboxone to me, which is another incredibly important part of my recovery. So at what point of your hospitalization did you start Suboxone? I spent about three, I guess, month long terms in the, in the hospital. And after my second one, um, I'd been on pain medication and from my prior drug use that I was, I was at that point fully addicted to opiates and the doctor that I can't remember, um, God bless her. Um, she recommended that I I use Suboxone in order to prevent the cravings that would lead me back into the life that ended up or that got did me you there. Feel, did you feel cravings while in the hospital? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, daily. Just as an addict, it's it's something that you feel at all times. Now it's not it's not so um powerful in my life, but at that time I Thank God that I didn't have, I couldn't leave the hospital that I, or else I would have. Um, there were many times that I thought of, of leaving and going and getting high, but I just had such great support there that I. I'm, I'm glad that you didn't because I had a patient who was scheduled to get a pacemaker because his heart was so damaged from methamphetamine. And, you know, right before the surgery, he chickened out and just walked out, wouldn't do it. Had, and, you know, when the cravings are that powerful. That dopamine set point takes a long time for it to go back um, to normal. Yes. Um, You came in for methamphetamine and yet Suboxone helped you with the methamphetamine as well. How could that be? That's not usually Suboxone works just for opioid addiction, not for methamphetamine. I think the chemical works directly on opioid receptors, but as far as the effect it has on an addict's brain, um, I think it's still, at least in my case, it still provided that relief that I needed, even though I, I don't, I don't feel high. I don't walk around like, oh my gosh, I'm, you know, freaking out, tripping out or anything. But I, uh, when I, when I first got into the hospital, I was fully addicted to alcohol, meth and heroin at the same time. Um, but like you say, how does how would Suboxone treat all of those different things? And I think I think the fact that it was the only thing that was there that would help me or help prevent me going back, uh, because they don't make a Suboxone for alcohol or a Suboxone for meth. Um, I still had something to to provide the the help that I needed to push through the tougher days and the tougher cravings. Um, and just all the, the challenges that early sobriety is. Um, well, I, I just want to say um, for my uh, scientific critics out there, there are medications for alcohol use disorder. There are medications um, more than just Suboxone for opioid disorder. Um, but you're right. There's no medications for methamphetamine or stimulant use disorder. Um, so, so that's true. So, but I think I hear what you're saying once, once you got, you know, the cravings for opioids, it, it helped with the cravings for the other things and you were getting in the right direction. Are you still taking Suboxone? Yes, ma'am. Um, yeah. 
And I, a lot of people be on it and they say, okay, well, I'm going to get off of it. And I just, my recommendation for you is don't be in a rush um, to, to be off of it. it um, you know, some people have diabetes, they need to take insulin their whole life. That's okay. Mm-hmm. If you, and if your addiction started when you were 13, 14 years old, and how old are you now? <laughs> 32. Yeah. 32. That's a long time. I mean, that's half your life, more than half your life. Your brain yeah. was used to, uh, you know, altering chemicals. So it may take you a long time before you can be off Suboxone. Um, cause the biggest mistake I see people doing is they take it, they feel better. And then they think that they don't need it anymore. And then they go back to that chronic relapsing disease. So if you need to be on it for a long time, and even if you need to be on it your whole life, that's okay. Cause look at what you're doing now and tell us what you're up to right now. Uh, I am a college student, 32 year old freshman. I'm on my way to get a computer science degree. That is amazing. 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 And, and, um, I'm proud of you, but you're an inspiration really to um, so many people who are who are, are listening, who are struggling. And uh, I, I like that that scar is the beginning of, of your future. <laughs> and I see you now um, through Zoom and I see that you have a really bright, beautiful uh, future ahead of you and really an, a model and an example and an inspiration to so many people. Oh, thank you. Um, do you feel I talk about um, drugs hijacking your brain. Do you feel that you have your brain back? Oh my gosh. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) And I think, I think drugs really just have the effect of like, of removing ourselves out of us. Um, where we, I just, I never really felt human and I'm getting all that back now. I, I have a personality and it's, it's, it's all right. And I'm okay with it. And it's, it's something that I've never really fully accepted in my life. But now that I have just the clarity, uh, it's outstanding just being able to think again, clearly. I, I see that beautiful personality. Was it <laughs> different when you were taking heroin and methamphetamine and alcohol? Yeah. Uh, it would be like, like say my personality is at a volume of 10 right now. I was running at about two. It's just everything smoothed out. There's really no, no real human emotions that, that are able to be shown at that, in that lifestyle, or it's because one of the main reasons I use drugs was to just, to, to feel more comfortable in myself and just around people in general, I get kind of nervous occasionally, but when you use, or when I use drugs, I, I felt more comfortable and I don't have to do that anymore. (laughs) How long did it take you to get your brain back? It was actually a lot faster than I thought it would be. Um, I have the fortunate situation of attending school, which kind of has the, the um, it, it kind of promotes thinking of, of course, that's kind of the wow. nature of it. But um, it probably took me about six months before I really started feeling like I'm getting it together and like where my thoughts were linear. I, it wasn't so hard to, to concentrate on things. I didn't feel so anxious all the time because early sobriety is an anxious survival. It's, it's hard. So it's, that it is is about six months. some people say it takes even a year to get, to get their brain, to get their brain back. So I have a theory I want to test on you. Um, my theory is that if we can prevent the growing brain from being exposed 
to drugs until the brain is done growing, which is age 25, 27, we can massively decrease addiction in, in the world. If you were somehow able to prevent being exposed to, till your brain was done growing, which really is for you is only a few years ago, would <laughs> your, do you feel like your life would be different? And do you think that that's a good theory? Yes, I do actually. Um, and I can't really speak so much as far as the chemical effect that drug use has on the brain, but there's a habitual effect too. Um, early on teenage years, that's when we're really developing key habits that, that really affect our life, our lifestyle and our future. Um, if I hadn't been learning habits that kept me from being productive and successful and from learning the coping skills that I, I really needed to survive life, I, my life would be totally different now. I, I don't think I would have had the destructive last 14 years that I have. Um, it's just, it's at that time in our lives, it's extremely important to develop the right habits that are, that are going to lead to success. And Robert, I don't mean to say for you to look back in your life and have regrets. I don't think you should. I mean, you are the person that you are and you have the future that you have because of those experiences, even if they were negative experiences. Um, So I don't mean to look back in that way, but I think by looking back, you can fix a future. Um, So that means like thinking up your own kids or other people's kids by learning of your experience. I don't mean like, oh, if only I did this. I'm thinking, okay, for the next generation, for other children, for my own children, if you had children growing up in uh, middle school years, what would you do to try to protect them? Of course, there's the the peer pressure aspect of, of drugs in when you're in school like that, all your friends are doing it kind of thing. Um, I would encourage them to to just to think for themselves, to think how that kind of behavior would affect their future, because that's a time where we should be learning how to build a strong work ethic and how to just set a schedule for our day. Um, and also, I would I would really try to reinforce just the message that with education, our futures can really be whatever we want them to be. And I don't think I don't think teenagers are really shown how much is really possible. At least in my experience, I was never as a teenager told that if you just go to school, even if you don't do well, you can do whatever you want in, in life. If, if people were just told that, I think it would help. But, but of course, I would, I would recommend that, you know, stay away from it until you're, you know, able to, to think and make choices as an adult. And then just don't let anything stop you from, yeah. from learning. I think resiliency is important. Being able to, well, you know, I don't know if my kids really listen to me, but I told them, don't be cool. You don't need to be cool. Be <laughs> geeky. That's fine. You know, yes. um, be yourself, or yeah. I, I be, being able to resist um, peer pressure by having your own self confidence. You know, I think yes. that that's, that's helpful. Um, any advice that you have for other people who are struggling, who are looking at you as like, wow, what an inspiration from a 1.6 GPA to being, you know, a college student in computer science. <laughs> what a difference. Don't let your past control what your, what your future can be. And it's never too late. Uh, and it's just, it's not as hard as, as people think it, but the most important thing that I did in my in my recovery is I t- really took that honest look inward, and I the I 
in recovery, it's, it's finding your shortcomings. And if you can really take that, take an extremely honest look at yourself without that self-love bias that we all naturally have and, and find the things that you really need to work on and just cultivate one of those one at a time. I mean, it's, you can do anything. It's, it's the easiest way. Um, but it's the hardest thing to do is, is really pick the pieces out of yourself that are going to work. That's, that's amazing. And that's something that's special that people in recovery have because they've taken that hard look on themselves and, and work on being good people. And that's what counts in the world. Sometimes you think, you know, maybe people who don't have addiction should go through some type of experience like that too, <laughs> to make right. themselves better people. Um, because I definitely see that in you, Robert, you are really, you, you make my day, um, and my week. I'm so proud of you. I'm so inspired. Thank you for sharing your, your experience. And I, I, I wish you and bless you with the best of success in the future. I know, I know it's going to be there for you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's been a privilege. Thank you so much to Robert Ash, who went from a 1.6 GPA and being homeless and using IV drugs to having a bright future as a college student in computer science. We wish him the best and thank him for um, the inspiration and, and guidance that you now will have for many people. And also thank you for to Sarah Salvin, who asked a very good question that brought you here of why do people suffer from addiction? I think that your your journey explains that. Thanks. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to CCR, Center for Community Research in San Diego, enhancing public health and safety through informed action, and the National Marijuana Initiative, raising awareness of the issues surrounding marijuana so citizens and policymakers can make well-informed decisions. NMI supports the high-intensity drug trafficking areas, HIDAs, as they work to carry out the national drug control strategy. We want to hear from you. Post a comment or email us about one thing you learned from this program. We thank you for listening and hope you will help our rating by giving us a five-star review. And subscribe so you won't miss any of our information-packed weekly shows. Visit our website, hightruths.com, to submit a question, take a quiz, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Until next week, this is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions, and I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.